Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where my goal is to give you quality information to help you along your parenting journey. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. Today's guest is my husband, Dr. Michael Hockman. My husband is a practicing internal medicine physician, and in today's episode, we will talk about his general philosophy about medicine. He believes in a principle called slow medicine, that when it comes to medical care, oftentimes less may be more. He also believes it is very important for doctors to involve their patients in their health care decisions, a principle called shared decision-making. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, the ultimate compliment is if you share it, whether by passing it along to a friend or by sharing it on your social media. Also, at the end of February, I will be offering an online interactive workshop to help parents worry less about their toddlers. I will be covering a range of topics, all with the goal to make you more knowledgeable and help parenting be less stressful. If you are interested in hearing more details, definitely follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica or send an email to AskDrJessicaMD at gmail.com. All right, now on to my conversation with Dr. Michael Hockman. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm so excited because our guest today is my husband, Dr. Michael Hockman. Welcome to, the, welcome to Ask Dr. Jessica. Very excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it all week. So tell everybody, who are you? What kind of medicine do you practice? I am an internist, so I take care of adults. So Mike has always been a big influence on me. I first met Mike my first week of medical school, and he was a fourth year of medical school. And I always was struck by the way he thinks about taking care of patients. And specifically, he thinks about medicine in a slow medicine way. So first tell everybody, what does that mean when I say you practice and think about medicine in a slow medicine way? Right. Well, it's not a, a term that everyone has at the tip of their tongue. It's, um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's used and it's, uh, you may have heard of the, the, the slow food movements or um, other slow, the slow movements in general. So when applied to medicine, um, the way I like to think about it and some of the people that I've worked with on it uh, is that, that uh, a thoughtful approach, evidence-based approach, and definitely incorporating the idea of less is more. So I like this when you say less is more. Um, I think a lot of people feel that medicine, that the more you do, the better the outcomes, but you've taught me that the opposite is true in many situations. Yeah, of course it's intuitive that medical care is good, so some of so more of it's going to be better than a little of it. And the problem is that that's not always the case. So how did you come to think this way? This is really a big part of the way you practice medicine. So can you think of how this came to be, or is this sort of always how you've been? Well, it's definitely been a slow evolution. When I finished medical school, I did my internal medicine residency training. And I think I first was struck by just how crazy the healthcare system is. And I remember being an intern in the uh, intensive care unit and caring for very frail older adults. And we're treating them very aggressively with breathing, t breathing tubes and feeding tubes and powerful medications to support their heart and blood pressure. And I would look at them and I would say, is this really the care that they need? Is this really advancing their goals? Is this really going to improve their quality of life? Is the person who comes out of this at the end of the day going to be really what, what that person would have wanted to? And I even had a few patients who said exactly this. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? And um, I, I guess that's how it all started. I just I, I saw the patients that we were treating, and, and, and I was just wondering, what are we do? Are we really doing good by them? So just to picture this, so you're talking about 
frail elderly patients at the end of their life or probably near the end of their life, and they're getting a lot of medical interventions, and you're wondering, is this, is this the best way? Is this the best we can do for them? That's exactly right. And that's probably how it started. But I also saw it in other settings. I would see it in cancer doctor's offices where patients were being strongly encouraged to get very aggressive chemotherapy treatment with bad side effects that were really impairing their life. And at what benefit? How many extra months of life? And at what cost to the quality of that life? Interesting. So if anybody listening uh, can understand after hearing my husband You'll, if you ever hear me question why an intervention or medication is necessary, you'll understand uh, this big influence in my life, right? <laughs> I, uh, well, the influence is both directions. It's true. Um, especially, I think, when it comes to our kids. Anytime there's a medication that's needed, Mike has a lot of questions. Is this really necessary? What will the benefit be? But in terms of the household decisions, I uh, rule those, right? <laughs> Uh, up for debate, up for debate, but I'll let you have that one. Um, okay. So, so Mike is so passionate about this. He even has, he even had a blog that was called slow medicine. Um, and he had a podcast for a while called healthy skeptic MD. And the whole theme was centered around how this very topic we're talking about that less medicine is often more. Are there any times though, when you think of healthcare being necessary? I mean, I understand how you're doubtful of a lot of interventions, but what about times when medical care is helpful? So I should probably have started with that. Healthcare can be absolutely transformational, life-saving, amazing. I've seen that. I've seen patients who have benefited tremendously. Recently, we had the Buffalo Bills player who collapsed on the field of a cardiac arrest. It was truly miraculous how modern medicine with its interventions and the intensive care treatment that he got, that Buffalo Bills player, survived and is doing great. It's, it's truly a miracle. The problem is when, when on the broad population level, all the care that we're doing in the United States isn't necessarily driving value. And I think the thing that really first started getting this idea in my mind, I had mentioned the patients I had seen, but then someone showed me something called the Dartmouth Health Atlas. And this is a look at the amount of medical care that's provided in different regions of the country. So there's some really striking findings there. If you have a heart condition in a major metropolitan area like Los Angeles or Boston, you're three or four times more likely to end up with a cardiac stent than someone who's living in a suburban area or like Minneapolis. Or, um, and this applies not just to heart care, it applies to cancer treatment, to preventive services, to many other things. And what's really striking about the Dartmouth Health Atlas is they look at health outcomes. And it turns out that regions of the country provide more medical care, not only don't always have better outcomes, but in some cases, people do worse. They actually live less long. And it's actually usually people in the lower end of the middle of the spectrum who do to do the best. So you're saying that despite people getting cardiac stents, they actually had worse outcomes in the areas of the country where they did not get as many cardiac stents? That's exactly right. In, in the right person, a cardiac stent can be absolutely life-saving. It can prevent a heart attack. It can treat a heart attack. It can make you live longer. But when those stents are given to too many people who don't need it, the, the harms and the side effects actually outweigh the benefits. And in many regions of this country, certainly the data seem to suggest that we are causing more harm than good. Is this, is this like that phenomenon where they say the analogy, if you give somebody a hammer, the whole world's a nail? So it turns out that the biggest predictor of how many of these procedures are done is how many 
surgeons, how many doctors there are in a region of con- in the country. So you can predict how many cardiac stents are going to be done by how many interventional cardiologists there are in a country, how many gallbladders are going to be taken out by how many gallbladder surgeons there are in a country. And it really shouldn't be that way. That, that, that number should be determined by how many patients have conditions requiring that treatment. But certainly there has to be a certain number of doctors that are helpful. Like how, how, does, how do we know what that number is? So I think that's where evidence-based medicine comes into play. And that's sort of the corollary here. Clearly, some medicine is good. Medicine can also be harmful. And there's a sweet spot, the Goldilocks level. And how do we find out in which cases is, is medicine and aggressive or treatment the, the right approach and in which cases is actually causing as much harm as good? There's a quote that you always say at home, and I, I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent you, but you say something like 99% of healthcare happens outside of the doctor's office. That's exactly right. Well, of course, all of us do not spend very much of our time, 0.01% of our time in a medical facility. So it's it would be quite hubristic of us as doctors to think that that couple minutes in the doctor's office is going to have a dramatic impact on health outcomes. And there's, of course, a famous study that shows that only about 10% of health is driven by medical care. Most of the other uh, health is driven by what you eat, your lifestyle, the social factors in your life. What I think is so interesting when you say this is so many people say the answer to better health care is to have more primary care, more primary care available, more access to care. Do you agree with this statement? Yes and no. Um, again, I, you know, I think it's hubristic of us to always see the doctor as the answer, the primary care doctor. With that said, we know that countries that have more primary care, uh, more accessible primary care health is better. And why is that? Well, um, primary care doctors tend to do less aggressive services. They tend to do more of the preventative care, um, the counseling on the lifestyle that actually leads to better outcomes. But it's not the number of doctors there are. It's really those factors outside of the doctor's office, how, what you eat, what you drink, uh, whether or not you smoke, um, how stressful your life is. Those are the factors that drive your health. Interesting. So, and this makes intuitive sense to me. I mean, I think the things that we do when we're not at the doctor, exercising, making right eating choices, not gaining too much weight, being with our friends, all of that makes a lot of sense. It it is not rocket science. So it's interesting because hearing you talk, you sort of sound like the anti-doctor doctor. Well, I try, I try not to be because I, I believe very much in medicine. I, I think having a good doctor is very important. But I think what makes someone a good doctor is to not always push the tools we have, to not always use that hammer against every time we see a nail, to use it judiciously uh, and, and in the right circumstance. In summary, can you tell me then overall what your healthcare philosophy is? Yeah, so... My overall philosophy is that um, we need medicine, but we shouldn't do too much of it, and most of it should be focused on non-aggressive counseling and preventative care. You know what I really appreciate about you is your feelings about shared decision-making. Mike talks a lot about how with his patients, he doesn't want to tell them what to do, And I think this is really helpful for me, actually, as I practice medicine, this philosophy. He doesn't want to tell them what to do. He wants to tell them. He tries to tell them what he thinks, the knowledge that he has, gives them advice. But then he wants them to make the decision on their own. Am I saying that right? 
That's exactly right. So many of the things that we do in healthcare are close calls. They're not clearly right that everyone should do them. They're not clearly wrong. There's pros and there's cons. And whether or not you should proceed with them depends on your goals, your values, what you want to do. So for example, getting a mammogram to prevent, um, to try and catch breast cancer early makes a lot of sense uh, in someone who's at the right age and has a chance to really benefit from that. If you have an older person who's got severe cardiac disease is only going to live a couple more years, um, getting that test doesn't make sense. Yet we in medicine are always pushing it uh, in situations that don't make sense. So I view my job as a as a doctor is to to help patients consider the pros and cons, and then they make the decision that's most in line with their goals. And I think patients really appreciate that, that you don't pressure them. Like they make the decision in the end, you give them the information, and then they make their decision about their body, their health. I think that's right. I think a lot of doctors want to come in and act like they know exactly what to do. Well, what exactly to do depends on what the patient's goals are. So it seems to me what you're saying is you appreciate that there's nuance in medicine. There's absolutely new nuance in medicine. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I want to tell a story about you when you were in residency. I remember when I went to your residency graduation, the fellow residents did a, a mock of all the residents, you know, sort of as the send-off. They, were, they did a little tease about everybody. And what you were teased about, I don't know if you remember this, was the guy that memorized all of the studies and regurgitated all of the studies. Is that true? Would you... Would you uh... Get, I plead the fifth. <laughs> So I just wanted to lead with that so you could understand um, when I talk to Mike and we talk about medical decisions, he's frequently quoting and referring to evidence-based studies, right? That is something I've, I've come to as part of this philosophy is that how do you know what is the right thing to do? Well, it's by reading the research. So you talk a lot about evidence-based medicine. Can you explain to people what is evidence-based medicine? Yes. Yeah, so the other thing I noticed when I was in my medical training is that doctors did things very differently. We'd have one doctor one day who would come in and want to give medication A, and then he'd be off the next day, and the new doctor would come in and she would give medication B. And both would be equally passionate that that was the right answer. And I said, there's got to be a, a, a more objective way of determining it. And that's how I really got interested in uh, evidence-based medicine. It's exactly that. It's using the medical literature rather than your own biases and hunches and past experience to guide decision-making. So ever since we had our first child, who's now 12 years old, Mike has passionately worked on a project where he has a book series called 50 Studies Every Doctor Should Know. Can you explain a little bit about your book series? Well, first of all, maybe this podcast may triple the number of sales I've, I've got. Um, and if you can't fall asleep at night, it's a great way of helping you fall asleep. But one, one thing that I, I've noticed is that, that it is very hard to stay on top of the medical literature. There are over a million studies, medical studies that come out every day. How could anyone possibly keep tallies of them? The thing is, many of them, if not the vast majority of them, are complete junk. They're low quality. It's not even worth the time to read them. But there are a handful that really make a difference. And so what I tried to do with the help of colleagues is find what are those really important studies that every everyone should know. And so I wrote a book called 50 Studies Every Doctor Should Know, which is the cliff notes of landmark medical studies. And now we're doing it in different specialties like pediatrics and neurology and surgery. And what I think is so cool about this book, I know I'm admittedly biased, but Mike will cite 
who funded the studies, how big the studies are, what are the drawbacks, what are the benefits, because no study can be perfect. That's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times we'll throw out a study, we'll quote something, but if you actually look look into the details, it was poorly done, uh, the researchers were clearly biased, um, whatever the reason, uh, and you might not uh, b believe that study. So what in, in the cliff notes, I try to highlight in a, in a systematic way, um, you know, what you should think about when interpreting the results. As a pediatrician, do you have any examples of studies that my audience might find interesting or helpful? Yeah, so I, I will say as a caveat, I am not a, a pediatrician. I'm an internist, but there are a number of really important studies in, in pediatrics. And, you know, you asked me to make a list of a couple of the ones that are in my book that some of your audience might, might be interested in. So I decided to pick three of them. Um, the first one is um, a very common topic, ADHD. Um, you know, there's been a, a big push, uh, particularly in recent years, to get children on ADHD medications. And um, there's a really important question, when do you pull the trigger? Medications are always going to have the side effects. So there's a lot written on ADHD, but there's only one really important study answering that question, when to start medications. It was done about 25 years ago. It was, studied by the, uh, it was funded by the NIH, National Institute of Health, so uh, a, a non-biased or about as non-biased as you can get funding source. It had about 600 kids in it, and it compared outcomes in kids who were given counseling for ADHD with, with medications. And what it found is that kids did actually behave better with the medications than with the therapy. And for this reason, a lot of pediatricians and doctors have interpreted this study to mean that you should start medications early and that most kids, young kids, and they were 7 to 10 years old in this study, should be started early uh, and aggressively on, on medications. The issue is there's, it's nuanced. When you actually looked at it, after three years, uh, after the study period had ended, the differences in the outcomes were, were no different. In fact, kids were doing just as well in school. Uh, behavioral levels had um, uh, evened out. Um, and so while one might interpret that, yes, I can improve my child's behavior by starting a medication early, the way I would view it, if I had a child in this situation, is actually I won't lose any ground. If I decide to wait and see if the issue improves on its own with some therapy, a less aggressive approach, um, there's no major risk. At the end of three years, I could always start them on a medication at that point. I won't have lost any ground. So if I hear what you're saying correctly, it's that if a parent opts to start their child on a medication to help with ADHD symptoms, it may help their symptoms, um, and that's an okay thing to do. But if you look at it over time, the differences even out. And so if a parent doesn't want to put their child on a medication, that's an okay option as well. And that is the essence of evidence-based medicine and shared decision-making. There's no right or wrong way to do this. There's pros and cons of each approach. And my job as the doctor is to help a patient understand the pros and cons, let them make a decision that aligns with their values. And I think this is a really nice example because I have a lot of parents that fall in both categories. Some parents are really unsure if they want to put their kid on a medication. They read the side effect profiles. It makes them nervous. And I think it's nice for parents to know that they don't have to. That's exactly right. And I think the critique I would have of our healthcare system is there's too many of us who know the headline, medications improve behavior for ADHD, and we push the medication on patients. It's nice. So, so it sounds like you just 
you, you give the information to parents, then you respect their ultimate decision. That's right. All right, let's try the next study. All right, so the next one here, let's take a look. Uh, ear tube placement. That's another common pediatric topic. So this was a study looking at the pros and cons of inserting ear tubes uh, in young children, three and under, um, with recurrent ear infections. And the historical teaching has been that if you put an ear tube in to drain the fluids, it's going to make ear infections, subsequent ear infections less common. It's going to help the kids hearing and let them do better in school. It's going to help their language develop better. They're going to be able to hear better in class. Uh, and so the medical community has always advocated uh, placing these ear, ear tubes. And a doctor at the University of Pittsburgh, very famous uh, researcher, Dr. Jack Paradise, uh, actually challenged that question. He said, let's actually do a study comparing outcomes in kids uh, who get ear tubes early and those who don't. And as always, the answer was very nuanced. So um, not surprisingly, young children who got the tubes had less effusions. Their hearing did improve in the short term. But in the long term, there actually was no adverse effects. There was no impact on their um, school development, their language development. Um, they were less, like, less likely to get um, recurrent infections if they got the ear tubes. But again, there was not any long-term consequences of that. So I view that as information that a parent should know when weighing the pros and cons. And there really is no right or wrong answer to that question. So if I have a parent, I'm just going to give a typical scenario, a parent that comes in, they see me and they're frustrated because their child seems to be on never-ending um, prescriptions for antibiotics. They're getting diarrhea. They're sick of their kids being you know, on antibiotics. Um, is it okay and reasonable for them to get ear tubes? In a situation like this, being a parent of kids who wake up in the middle of the night, by all means, if it's going to help you sleep better and the child sleep better, Get ear tubes. There's a quality of life benefit for you and the child of doing it. Okay. And on the flip side, if a parent says, my child's had multiple ear infections, it's been suggested that maybe they should get ear tubes. So-and-so next door had a similar situation and they had ear tubes. Is this something that I have to do? Will my child suffer in the long run if we decide not to get ear tubes? And that's exactly right. Conversely, if you're handling it, you don't mind your child having to get ear infections a couple times a year, do antibiotics. You can avoid uh, this invasive procedure and know that a couple of years down the road, there's no going to be no harm done and you'll still have the chance to do the tube. And, and once again, my critique of the medical profession is that too often we are quick to say, get the procedure, do the treatment. This is really helpful to hear because I do know a lot of parents that lean in both directions. And that's, again, what shared decision-making is all about. We, as patients, should drive the decision-making, not the doctors. Thank you. This is really helpful. All right. Now, the last example is something that comes up a lot in my office, and that is many children, they fall and hit their heads. Parents are so nervous. They want to do the right thing, and they go to the ER, and they're not sure if their child should get a head scan or not. Tell us, what does the study show about children and head scans? Yeah, so this is a very interesting study. Obviously, uh, you know, there are downsides to getting a CAT scan in a young child. There's radiation exposure, um, which not to make anyone worried about getting a CT scan if they really need it, but we know that that is damaging to a young child's body and it can have some downsides. We don't want to get a CT scan unless it's necessary. And this looked at, tens of thousands of young children with head trauma, and it tried to identify factors that 
uh, indicated the need for a CT scan. So it found that if you uh, didn't have a handful of factors, that the chances that there was a, a significant finding uh, that you would get on a CT scan that would allow a better treatment or surgery um, was very, very small. So for example, if you did not have an altered mental status, if the child was thinking clearly, and they did not have evidence of a basal or skull fracture, which is typically seen by bruising uh, underneath the ears and evidence of a fracture, that the chances of a, of a significant head injury that a CT scan would, would reveal very, very small. And we can spare most of those kids unnecessary CT scans. The evidence tells us that if they don't have these abnormal findings, um, it's, it's really not necessary and we can spare that child the radiation exposure. That's really interesting because I do know, you know, I have friends that are radiologists and they'll say, well, the radiation that we use on kids is very little. We, we, we lower the amount we know we're seeing children. It's not that harmful. But at the same time, if it's not going to be beneficial. It probably is not har that harmful, but why take any risk if it's not necessary? Before we wrap up, any last advice for parents that are listening? Well, uh, you know, the, the old Roman saying, buyer beware. Uh, you know, we, we like to have a lot of respect for healthcare professionals in, in the United States, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, people go to school for a long time, and I think most doctors and medical professionals are very well-meaning. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not okay to question and ask, ask questions and even get a second opinion. If you are getting a treatment, if someone is recommending a, a procedure, a medication, another service that you don't think is going to improve the health outcomes of your child, it's okay to help to ask the question, why are we doing this? Is this really something my child needs? Is this really something they're going to benefit from? And if you don't get a good answer, it's okay to get a second opinion. See what someone else thinks because there's more than one way of doing things. You know, if you're in LA, you're much more likely to get a cardiac stent, but if you were in Minnesota, you'd be just uh, doing just fine without that stent. So, so see if there's someone else who has a different perspective. And what about for patients? I mean, clearly you have, you know, you have the ability to read and interpret studies. You're, you're a doctor. You've, you have a public health degree. Um, you've been trained in this. What about for the average parent? How are they supposed to know who to trust? Yeah. So I, I really think that this is one of those situations where your gut can, can say a lot. You can say, is this medication, is this really something that my child needs, if we're doing ADHD medication, for example, are we at wit's end and have we given up all non-medication options? Okay, if that's the case, then absolutely take the medication. But if you're feeling like someone's trying to push you or encourage you to take a medication that your child isn't ready for, don't be afraid to ask why. I think that's really well said. And I think that's true for so many things in parenting and so many things in life that you really, if we really lean into our own gut and not feel pressured, oftentimes we'll come to the right answer for, for ourselves. And if you have a good doctor, they will not um, become defensive and they will explain their rationale. And there very well may be a good rationale. There are certain situations where I tell people, I know this doesn't seem right, but the evidence shows this is really going to improve your outcomes. You should do this. Um, but it's worth asking the question. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really nice to have you and I hope you come back. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at Ask Dr. Jessica. See you next Monday.